0: Welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. Today, my guest is my colleague, Katie Blizzard, uh, who works with me at the Washington Papers, and she is also an editor at the Papers of Martin Van Buren. So,
1: hi Katie. Hi Katie. <laughs> it's great <laughs> to be here and talk a little bit more about Van Buren, who I understand has really only gotten into people's popular culture attention from the Seinfeld episode about the Van Buren boys gang. Um, so, <laughs> here I am, happy to uh, provide a little more detail on uh, why that gang's so interested in Van Buren. I uh, have zero memory of that episode of Seinfeld, but I am delighted. (laughs) I have no memory, sadly, of it because I have not seen it, but it is frequently suggested for my viewing whenever I tell people I'm an editor for the Van Buren Papers Project.
0: I'm counting this as a women's letter because it's a letter from Martin Van Buren to a woman, It's to uh, Judith Reeves, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the Martin Van Buren Papers Project.
1: The project is primarily located at Cumberland University, which is a university located in Lebanon, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. It started actually in the late 20th century with a microfilm edition project of um, the Van Buren papers. But anyone who's seen these letters just knows how atrocious the handwriting is for this period. And it really deserves some serious transcription. So a project that was started in the um, 2010s uh, got to work on doing that type of transcription and has partnered with the Center for Digital Editing at the University of Virginia which is how I've gotten involved remotely in working for this project.
0: So it's it's all going to be freely available online all of these papers
1: at yeah. some point. Yeah, uh, there's a website that is Fantastically titled Van Buren Papers dot org, <laughs> uh, so you can go there and you can find any letters that we've already published the transcriptions of those letters and all the letters we transcribe will be available on that site and then there will also be a select print edition of uh, the letters. And what's your role with the project? I am a consulting research editor, uh, so I am responsible for doing transcriptions of documents as well as verifying transcriptions produced by student editors or other editors at the project. Are you an expert now at reading old handwriting? Um, So when you first start looking at Van Buren's handwriting, you think, oh my god, it can't get any worse than this. And it does. His, (laughs) His, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if they knew what they were writing to one another back then, because it's just a bunch of gibberish at points. But um, you do get used to Van Buren's handwriting. It, it becomes something a little comforting when you're moving from John Forsyth's handwriting, which is even worse. Um, and you go back to Van Buren's and you're like, oh, thank God, I recognize this. It, it's got a steep learning curve, but once you get over it, it's a lot of fun to, to really dig in and uh, decipher these puzzles that they've left behind in their hastily written scrawl
0: i am not i have to admit my presidential history is not so great studying women's history in the united states did not prepare me to know very much about martin van buren so can you give me a sort of brief introduction to martin van buren himself
1: Sure. I I just would like to point that your initial prompting question here was how has working with his papers changed your understanding of him as a president? But I just want to say it hasn't. I knew going in that his reputation as president was not very good and it has not changed my opinion of that. He had had a lot of frustrations and, and factionalism to deal with when he was president. So I would like to say in advance of the introduction of him that I give that it's really his larger career that I've gained respect for um, in working on these papers. The introduction I have, uh, I'll start that he was born in Kinderhook, New York in 1782. So he was the first president that was born not as a British subject, but actually as an American resident. Of course, as you know, he was the eighth president, but his larger career as a politician included Secretary of State and Vice President under Jackson, before that as a national senator. I like to think of him as a career statesman and politician because he's, Famously credited for contributing to the American political system. So he was really instrumental in creating a, an organized. Ideologically unified system in New York, and then large uh, on the larger national stage. Like I said, working on these papers has given me a lot more respect for his larger career. It's interesting reading the documents from his later president, like later years in the presidency, as he's seeing people like Reeves no longer supporting him. Right. In this letter that he's writing to Reeves's wife, Judith, it seems like they're, they're best butts, but there's a fantastic political cartoon at the Library of Congress that um, it's it's a shipwreck, and Van Buren is one of the men overboard, and Reeves is one of the... Men shown in the clouds who's responsible for the gale of wind that upturned Van Buren's boat or uh, ship as it sailed towards the 1840 election. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I just did a little basic sort of reading about Van Buren before this episode, and I did enjoy that he was known for being very politically savvy, and his political enemies called him the little magician or the red fox of Kinderhook, which is great. <laughs>
1: Yeah, another nickname for him was Old Kinderhook or OK. Uh, so I <laughs> to have that in
0: there. Just from this letter, reading it, it seems like he's kind of like this political bro type guy. Like he's making these little jokes in there. Anyway, we'll get to it when we get to the letter. <laughs> so, this letter. So that's as I said, Martin Van Buren is writing to a woman, Judith Reeves. So tell me a little bit about Judith.
1: So Judith Reeves was born in central Virginia, as was her husband, William Cabell Reeves. She is an author of four different titles, including Souvenirs of a Residence in Europe. Van Buren got to know both Judith Reeves and William Cabell Reeves um, as early as the late 1820s, which would have been around the time that Jackson was campaigning to to be president. And both William Cavill Reeves and Martin Van Buren served under the Jackson administration, Reeves as a minister to France and Van Buren first as secretary of state and uh, later vice president. So I I, I provide the backstory about William Cavill Reeves, um, because I think it's really crucial to understanding the political windows and illusions that are being made in this letter because as is written in the letter, Van Buren expected that uh, some of the information would have been shared with Mr. Reeves and later that month on the 10th of April Mr. Reeves responds to this letter with a letter Mm. of his own I, I think it's interesting perhaps to a question you may ask of what the relationship was like between these three individuals is that material written from Van Buren to Judith Reeves, was in reference, could have referenced, and may have been shown to Mr. Reeves because it it concerned um, political information and Washington society.
0: The sort of public nature of correspondence at this time period is not necessarily public, but like, if you wrote a letter to somebody, it was sort of expected that it'd be read to the rest of their family. And in certain cases, and I feel like particularly for an unmarried man writing to a married woman, like they would have had some sort of agreement that her husband is involved in in these letters. I feel like a letter from an unmarried man to a married woman that she wouldn't show her husband would be pretty scandalous
1: at this time. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially given things uh, that Van Buren, the, the very flirty and by today's standard, very flirty things he's injecting into this letter. Uh, of course, I suspect there was some oversight, some gentleman's agreement. Yeah. I've had
0: a couple letters from men written to women that I count as women's correspondence because there really is a difference in tone in the way that men at this time period wrote when they knew it was going to be a woman reading it. Like, there's this kind of flirty... Thomas Jefferson's just terrible with it. Like, Jefferson's regular letters are pretty boring and flat and maybe he'll have a couple jokes in there but like his letters to women are sometimes just like you're cringing for him (laughs) (laughs) stop trying so hard jefferson (laughs) you're not as clever as you think you are to to get into the exact context of what's happening at the time of this letter which might make it a little easier to understand the time period that this is written is this is from first april 1835 at this point van Buren was 53 years old he was a widower at this point his wife uh, hannah hose van buren had died in 1819 at the age of 35 and he never remarried i guess when he was president this first lady was actually the person who people considered to be his first lady was his daughter-in-law the exact time of this letter he is still vice president of the united states under andrew jackson he had actually played a crucial political role in getting jackson elected and andrew jackson and martin van buren were very politically close. They worked together very well. And as far as the functioning of Jackson's cabinet, Martin Van Buren has a lot to do with how effective that was. So Jackson's always very fond of Van Buren. Also, Van Buren seems to have been one of those vice presidents who had a lot of influence. It actually, from my reading, my understanding, it seems like he was more successful as a vice president than he was finally, as president. <laughs> and at the exact time of this letter, he is campaigning to be the next Democratic-Republican presidential candidate following Andrew Jackson. And in fact, a little more than a month later, on May 20th, the nominating convention chose him to be the candidate. So that's sort of the the point. Uh, at the time he's writing this, he is very much in the thick of His political life, trying to make connections, trying to uh, secure this candidacy.
1: I'd also add that um, at this time, he's anticipating and Reeves is anticipating that Reeves will be the running mate for Van Buren. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, at the Baltimore convention in May, there was an upset. Reeves was not chosen as the running mate. Uh, It was actually Richard Johnson from Kentucky. It was hoped that. Reeves would be the running mate to get that Southern partiality in there. So there's <laughs> there's another letter just a few months from this one of April 1. It's in June where uh, Reeves shares a little bit of his disappointment of losing the vice presidency um, nomination.
0: As far as what's going on in Judith's life, we talked a little bit about her relationship with William Cabell Reeves, but at this point, point he'd stepped down as u.s senator so he he'd been senator from 1832 to 1834 but stepped down and he was re-elected as a senator in 1835 so this is kind of a moment where he is in a yeah he's he's not in a really solid political position at exactly this point right
1: yeah, things are souring for him this year. This is an important year for him in his relationship with others in his party. So uh,
0: Judith has, I am imagining, is also very affected by uh, her husband's political career, and that's sort of what what's going on at this point. So that is a little bit of the context. I'm gonna go ahead and jump into the letter. It's a little bit of a long one, but I think it's best to just go through it and then at the end we'll go through sort
1: of key points and things that struck each of us about it. Sound good? Sure. I do want to be clear. This is not, as you mentioned, how Jefferson wrote to his peers, his male peers, differently than how he wrote to women. Um, this is, I have not seen uh, as humorous a style in um, his letters to, to cabinet members and, and friends. I mean, there, there, there might be stuff sprinkled in, but this definitely, like every paragraph, he's really trying to um, do a little something extra here.
0: Martin Van Buren to Judith Reeves, 1st April, 1835. My dear friend, I have done wrong to suffer your last letter to remain so long unnoticed. The pleasure I derived from it turns the case into one of ingratitude. But you are good and will pardon me. Your excuses for not paying us a visit are, with a single exception, bad. That exception consists in the object of your visit to Nelson. Those are matters that must be attended as long as people will marry, and I hope you will not refuse to tender me the same service if it should be my unlucky destiny to require it. What say you to Mrs. T of Ravensburg? Ask Mr. Reeves whether it would promote the good course in Virginia, and say you whether she would do. And what is more germane to the matter, whether you think she would be so much beside herself as to have me. I have not seen her for many years, and unless Virginia gets out of the woods soon, a closer connection with her would seem to offer but few inducements. But I hope the old lady, Virginia meaning, will mend her principles soon, and her ways too, so that you may no longer derive an excuse from this condition for not visiting us. And so you could not come because, forsooth, you had been accustomed to be Mrs. Somebody, and was not sure that you would play well the part of Mrs. Nobody. Do you know that I, and I hope I am not the only sensible person in Washington, think more of plain Mrs. Reeves than I would of Mrs. Anything-You-Please-Virtute-Officio? I believe the lawyers have it. So that is Latin, virtute officio for by virtue of office, according to Google Translate. And I am almost tempted to scold you for allowing yourself to think otherwise. But we all know that you Virginians are for the most part only theoretical and professing Republicans we must lend you some of our New York tactics to bring you right. How are your elections going? I see that you have to suffer for my sins. That is right, for God knows I have suffered enough for my Southern partialities. Since I was a boy, I have been stigmatized as the apologist of Southern institutions, and now, forsooth, you good people will have it, Nolan's Volens, that I am an abolitionist, and several other ists that do not deserve to be mentioned. But I am growing... As you say, spiteful, which is my aversion. And above all, I ought not to abrade you with infirmities, which I know you are too intelligent not to see, and too patriotic, if a lady can be patriotic, not to condemn. I wish your husband could have gone to Ohio. It would have been useful to him, but his excuse is a good one. We are here comparatively quiet and enjoy ourselves rationally. The president's health has been bad, and is still delicate, I have been driving him out today, and was distressed to find him so feeble, but he is tough, and will live long enough to bring Louis Philippe to terms. The Ohio and Michigan business has given him some trouble, but his good sense and good fortune will carry him through. My avocation for several months has been to answer queries from Virginia. None was a poor devil subjected by so severe a cross examination as I have been by the Old Dominion, and from no other quarter. After Mr. Butler's communication to Mr. Ritchie appears, I hope we will have gotten through. I mention these things for Mr. Reeves, who is, I am sure, too gallant to deny me the pleasure of putting my communication to him in this most agreeable form. The President was not decidedly positive on his course, but will probably remain here till July, and then go to, illegible, out for a month or two. I shall remain here with him until the 1st of May, and perhaps longer. You and Mr. Reeves should visit the North this summer. I have a long and interesting letter from Mrs. Van Rensselaer a few days since, and have given her in return a full view of the history and present state of the French affair, in which she feels a deep interest. Looking at it and its consequences with her usual good sense. Mrs. Donaldson is as handsome and agreeable as ever. Her husband, legible, to leave her for a month or two. Mr. Smith leaves us tomorrow his master, John, having ordered him to his studies. He and the Major desire to be remembered to you. Remember me kindly to Mr. Reeves and tell him I should be happy to hear from him and believe me to be very truly yours, M. Van Buren. This is a sassy little letter, I think.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sassy magician. (laughs) We might give us a new nickname. (laughs) The sassy little red fox magician.
0: (laughs) To go into... Okay, he's joking about her not visiting, and that she's given him bad reasons, with the single exception of that she appears to be attending a wedding. Do you know anything about this wedding?
1: I don't. I would like to point that that he says, your visit to Nelson, which I presume means Nelson County, Virginia, which would be in the neck of the woods for the Reeves, who would at this time be located in Albemarle County, Virginia, where Castle Hill, their estate, is located.
0: Yeah, so I I like his little bit about how you you can be excused from not visiting because you're going to a wedding and i hope that if i ever am unlucky enough to marry again you'd come to my wedding
1: <laughs> yeah what's he saying here about hannah hose uh just classic
0: 53 year old man ho the whole ball and chain <laughs> humor uh, maybe avant-garde boomer humor here <laughs> And then I I wasn't able to figure out who Mrs. T of Ravensburg was, um, but I like his little joke that he's like, maybe I marry a Virginian, because he's not doing very well politically in Virginia at this point. And he's like, well, if I marry someone. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) 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 Well, the little bit where he's like, I hope the old lady, I was like, that's not going to be good. And then he says, meaning Virginia. So he refers to the state of Virginia as being (laughs) the old lady. (laughs) who needs to mentor principals (laughs) talking about martin a lot of this letter seems to be about martin van buren losing a lot of support from virginia and i think he is sort of hoping his relationship with the reeves and anybody else that he can can get him some good credit and i think part of the reason that he wasn't doing well in virginia was because he had gotten a a reputation, and he mentions it, he complains about it, for being anti-slavery. And people are calling him an abolitionist, even.
1: I, I think actually the month before, there were queries as to his position on D.C., abolishing slavery and uh, what his stance on that would be. And so this is very much a topic of concern for him as a candidate to the presidency of um, being able to assuage Southern voters as well as Northern voters with a slavery policy, which is that he's not going to intervene. It's up to the, the states to, to figure that out. And that, um, of course, we know later on that he would run on the Free Soil party platform in um, the 40s. But here he's saying that, he, yeah, he's, he's, he's frustrated with how people are painting his views on slavery. He wants to appeal to everybody as much as possible.
0: And that's one of those for somebody who's inventing the career politician or the career statesman job of him being like, well, I I don't want to make the New York voters mad, but I also don't want to make the Virginian voters mad. So how can he be like both pro and con uh, slavery at the same time? And just not clearly, obviously having no principles (laughs) or moral take on the subject whatsoever. Yeah, let's just kick the can down the road. Being accused of being an abolitionist as if it's, uh, that could be like something out of politics today where he's like an abolitionist or any other is. I don't know actually what other ists he would be accused of at this time because people weren't really calling people like racists quite. Like that wasn't the language yet. So I think of it as being like racist, sexist, homophobic or whatever, but they wouldn't be using that language back then. So I wonder what else they were accusing him of.
1: I don't know. Um... I, I'm wondering in part, that this is, I'd, I'd like to caution that this is pure speculation on my part, but fiscal policy is very much of concern to the party at this time. Um, there's factions in the party that are growing that have different ideas as to how fiscal policy should be handled. Um, and so I wonder if that, um, if there's an ist in there that he is afraid of being accused of.
0: Okay, so his little section where he says one of her experiences excuses for not visiting DC was she was accustomed to being Mrs. Somebody, and she was not sure she'd play well the part of a Mrs. Nobody. I think that's kind of an interesting little insight into DC society. So she was going to be there from being the wife of a congressman to being the wife of plain old Mr. Reeves.
1: I I kind (laughs) of... sell it as a backhanded compliment of you you didn't want to come if you were going to be a mrs nobody but i will have you know that i like you just the way you are you. plain mrs <laughs> old reeves
0: well that's true it's it's very patronizing and his little i almost want to scold you it's like oh okay calm down martin <laughs> we all know that you virginians are for the most part only theoretical and professing republicans we must lend you some of our new york tactics this really backs up the take I feel like of Martin Van Buren as sort of like a strategic political type guy he's talking about their New York tactics at this point. A chess player in politics so to speak. Uh, Is he talking a little bit about the Whig party going on because there really are people who are trying to break away there's factions
1: in the Democratic Republicans at this point the party's going through a split I I, I think with the the New York tactics to bring you right that, that makes me think of the ideological unification that party politics organized poly- party politics would would strive for yeah any factionalism would would be abhorrent so uh
0: he's got to get get those rowdy virginians in line it doesn't seem like he was able to do that uh particularly well and then of course he has the little jab about can a woman be patriotic
1: <laughs> ever heard of a little filly called lady liberty martin van Buren <laughs> Maybe he'd marry her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's just funny to me that he can write something like, if a lady can be patriotic, in a letter that he's writing to a woman about politics. This is very much a letter about what's going on. Like, it's, it's in like a conversational, jokey sort of tone. But he's writing about politics and news and what's going on. And he's really filling her in. And he says, like, of course, update your husband about this as well. But I think that's funny because... I think certain people would have avoided writing to a woman about any sort of form of politics, depending on the person. What's your understanding? Were they like good friends? Or is it more like he was good friends with her husband and then this sort of correspondence carried after that?
1: Yeah, so this is speculation on my part, but... I like to think that Van Buren being a widower living in Washington society, that he really had to play the part of two different people in society uh, or two roles. I think that he strove to create a relationship with the male politicians and their wives um, to, to create solid relationships with both of them and to really set himself on solid ground in Washington society. I I did, in advance of today's getting together, um, I found another letter that he wrote her in 1829, where he wrote, I wish you took interest in anything here, here being Albany, that I might have something to write as a consideration for what I'm about to ask of you, that is, if you will pardon my presumption. I like to hear the gossip of the female world of Washington, and I should be ashamed if I did not, for those smaller concerns are among the real comforts of life. How am I to get it? I think that um, he is good friends with uh, William Cabell Reeves, but like I said, is trying to create relationships with the wives of the men that he's working with, too, to really create solid relationships with everyone that he'd be working with and seeing around Washington. I love that quote.
0: That really fits into the sort of parlor politics type view of Washington at this point. And that's actually something that Andrew Jackson, I think, was sort of famously not very good at. The, the women he introduced into Washington, D.C. society were almost in, always entirely scandalous. But politics isn't just the official, you know, meetings of Congress and all of that. Politics, as we all know, is also happening in things like dinner parties and conversations and social life. And even more so at this time period, 1835, where there's things like who's invited to who's parlor in the afternoon, who's visiting who, who has good relationships and friendships. And I've read the argument that this is something that Thomas Jefferson was very good at, actually. He had a sort of a feminine style of politics and it was about who's talking about who and keeping up with the gossip. And just from that quote that you read, it could, like Martin Van Buren sees the value of what is going on in DC society and who's being invited where and what's being discussed behind the scenes because that does really impact
1: actual like written published political decisions. Yeah, Martin Van Buren says, spill the tea if you please. <laughs>
0: Literally literal teas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the
0: couple things that he mentioned that I needed to look up. He mentions that uh Andrew Jackson is tough and will live long enough to bring louis philippe to terms so that is discussing a important political fight that's happening at this point where andrew jackson was trying to get the french king louis philippe to pay reparations for american shipping losses during their napoleonic wars so there'd been a treaty in 1831 that had not yet been paid this was sort of seen as one of andrew jackson's big political fights at this moment And then the Ohio and Michigan business uh, was of interest to me personally, because this is something that I had no idea existed. This is a reference to the Toledo War, which was a boundary dispute between Ohio and Michigan. So I had heard of this because I'm from Ohio. (laughs) And I went to Bowling Green State University, which is up north, very close to Toledo. Apparently... (laughs) there was a very small strip of land called the toledo strip between ohio and michigan that michigan claimed and ohio claimed and in march 1835 the governor of ohio sent 600 armed militiamen to claim that strip and michigan responded with about a thousand militia to the city of toledo to fight to defend it so it was almost an actual war there were there were armed people facing off and it was a bit of a disaster for andrew jackson and federal government because i believe it was a federal government error that even led to the dispute and so literally two days after this andrew jackson sent representatives from washington to go up there and try to negotiate this out and he ends up supporting ohio instead of michigan because ohio had more Voters and more representatives in Congress. It was very, nobody really cared about it except for what political gains you could get. Yeah, it's not transparent at all. I'm sure there's people who care very deeply about it in Ohio and Michigan. And at Bowling Green, Toledo was our college rivals, so I'm sure there were a lot of jokes about like, who wants Toledo? We should have given it to Michigan. (laughs) So I mentioned earlier, he mentions Mr. Ritchie, who was Thomas Ritchie, the editor of the Richmond Inquirer, and he was the state printer of Virginia. So these positions of state printer and the post office were very influential in political maneuvering at this time. And Mr. Butler was probably Benjamin Franklin Butler, who was uh, Andrew Jackson's attorney general. And I did some digging to see because he he mentioned that there was going to be something published. I think he's referring to this article that was published on April 3rd. So two days later, which was a a strong defense of Martin Van Buren, which (laughs) they said in the article, it aimed to give a frank and manly exposition of Mr. Van Buren's course and opinions. So this is sort of uh, Van Buren doing what he can to try to get some of these Virginia voters back. Now, the last paragraph is mostly, I think, some of the social news, right? He's updating on whose husbands are traveling. And so do you recognize some of the folks that he mentions in this last paragraph?
1: I I think that a number of the people who are being referred to later in this paragraph, Smith, Mrs. Donaldson, Major, I think these are references to individuals in the Van Buren and uh, Jackson families who. Of course, he would know very well they're either being his own son or family members of someone he's working very closely with. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so we've got a letter from the vice president. I think this is just a really fascinating little piece of correspondence. It's cute. It's funny. It's got sort of this flirty element to it, but then also just steeped in politics. I think, again, Martin Van Buren, that little red fox. So to sum up, why... Why when you were doing your letter checks, what drew you to this letter?
1: There's there's a variety of things that drew me to this letter. One, I mentioned previously that this project grew out of a microfilm edition of Van Buren's papers. And so when you're looking at images of microfilm, um, you're, you're, you're multiple layers removed from the original document. And so if the original document is faded, as was the case of this letter, you're not going to to see or read very much. And so it was really important to me that we get the original, uh, we get an image of the original manuscript to kind of recover this because Judith Reeves, I I felt like I hadn't seen her name come up in other transcription checks I had been doing. So I kind of thought, well, we we need to get on this because William Cavill Reeves is kind of a big deal at this moment. The the other thing that drew me to this letter is that being living in central Virginia, some of the places that are being mentioned in this letter and other letters to Judith Reeves or William Cabell Reeves are places I'm familiar with, and so it's fun to get that historical look to places that I pass on a daily basis. And then thirdly, what's not to love at a sassy Van Buren letter? This is just too much fun. It's a party bit I love to pull out um, to talk about Van Buren. Did anyone know that the eighth president of the United States could be so sassy? Um, (laughs) Those are the different things that, that really drew me to this letter.
0: As I was doing my little research about Martin Van Buren, and i saw that he didn't have the same level of sort of higher education than a lot of uh, men at this time were getting he had he he was educated but he wasn't like a college man and i wonder if that has something to do with him having these like good relationships with women who at this Hmm. point were still pretty much barred from that level of education so maybe he got along with uh women who also had a sort of similar background of they're learning politics from living it (laughs) at the same time as he is a little bit. I wonder if that maybe has something to do with it. That's a very interesting notion. Maybe that has something to do with it. I have to read more about his relationship with other women in politics. Anything when you were reading this letter that you found relatable
1: uh, no, I, <laughs> I I don't receive a lot of personal email, which would be to me the equivalent of receiving um, a letter like this. Uh, so I, it, it's not relatable to me um, to have written communications on these subjects, but I did find the humor style, this um, sarcasm, this playfully digging on someone that you respect and know well, I found not relatable. That's definitely a, a type of humor that persists today in um, friendships. And so this made me feel like I was uncovering a, a friendship that could have taken place just a few weeks ago.
0: Katie, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast.
1: <laughs> Oh, Thank you, Katie, for having me. (laughs) I would like to add that um, I hope that you listeners out there take uh, something away more than that Van Buren was just the eighth president of the United States and great comedic fare for um, a 90s classic sitcom.
0: Please go look up more Van Buren letters. Yeah, I'll I'll put links to the Martin Van Buren papers that are up online now um, in the show notes for sure. Me and Katie will obviously start the next martin van buren gang <laughs> and you're all welcome to join <laughs> feel free to check out the show notes i will put uh, some of these sources that i looked into i will put link to the uh martin van buren papers website and until next time i am as ever your most obedient and humble servant thank you very much